The Second Generation by Algernon Blackwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Rimniak. The Second Generation by Algernon Blackwood. Sometimes, in a moment of sharp experience, comes that vivid flash of insight that makes a platitude suddenly seem a revelation. Its full content is abruptly realized. Ten years is a long time, yes, he thought, as he walked up the drive to the great Kensington house, where she still lived. Ten years, long enough at any rate, for her to have married and for her husband to have died. More than that he had not heard in the outlandish places where life had cast him in the interval. He wondered whether there had been any children. All manner of thoughts and questions, confused a little, passed across his mind. He was well-to-do now, though probably his entire capital did not amount to her income for a single year. He glanced at the huge forbidding mansion, yet that pride was false, which had made of poverty an insuperable obstacle. He saw it now. He had learned values in his long exile. But he was still ridiculously timid. This confusion of thought, of mental images, rather, was due to a kind of fear, since worship ever is akin to awe. He was nervous as a boy going up for a viva voce, and with the excitement was also that unconquerable sinking, that horrid shrinking sensation that excessive shyness brings. Why in the world had he come? Why had he telegraphed the very day after his arrival in England? Why had he not sent a tentative, tactful letter, feeling his way a little? Very slowly he walked up the drive, feeling that if a reasonable chance of escape presented itself, he would almost take it. But all the windows stared so hard at him that retreat was really impossible now, and though no faces were visible behind the curtains, all had seen him, possibly she herself. His heart beat absurdly at the extravagant suggestion. Yet it was odd. He felt so certain of being seen and that someone watched him. He reached the wide stone steps that were clean as marble and shrank from the mark his boots must make upon their spotlessness. In desperation, then, before he could change his mind, he touched the bell. But he did not hear it ring. Mercifully, that irrevocable sound must have paralyzed him altogether. If no one came to answer, he might still leave a card in the letter-box and slip away. Oh, how utterly he despised himself for such a thought! A man of thirty with such a chicken heart was not fit to protect a child, much less a woman. And he recalled with a little stab of pain that the man she married had been noted for his courage, his determined action, his inflexible firmness in various public situations, head and shoulders above lesser men. What presumption on his own part ever to dream! He remembered, too, with no apparent reason in particular, that this man had a grown-up son already, by a former marriage. And still, 
No one came to open that huge, contemptuous door with its so menacing, so hostile air. His back was to it as he carelessly twirled his umbrella, but he felt its sneering expression behind him while it looked him up and down. It seemed to push him away. The entire mansion focused its message through that stern portal. Little timid men are not welcomed here. How well he remembered the house. How often in years gone by had he not stood and waited just like this, trembling with delight and anticipation, yet terrified lest the bell should be answered and the great door actually swung wide. Then, as now, he would have run, had he dared. He was still afraid. His worship was so deep. But in all these years of exile, in wild places, farming, mining, working for the position he had at last attained, her face and the memory of her gracious presence had been his comfort and support, his only consolation, though never his actual joy. There was so little foundation for it all, yet her smile and the words she had spoken to him from time to time in friendly conversation had clung, inspired, kept him going, for he knew them all by heart, and more than once in foolish optimistic moods he had imagined greatly daring that she possibly had meant more. He touched the bell a second time with the point of his umbrella. He meant to go in, carelessly, as it were, saying as lightly as might be, "'Oh, I'm back in England again, if you haven't quite forgotten my existence. I could not forego the pleasure of saying how do you do and hearing that you are well, and the rest, then presently bow himself easily out into the old loneliness again. But he would at least have seen her, he would have heard her voice, and looked into her gentle amber eyes. He would have touched her hand. She might even ask him to come in another day and see her. He had rehearsed it all a hundred times, as certain feeble temperaments do rehearse such scenes. And he came rather well out of that rehearsal, though always with an aching heart, the old great yearnings unfulfilled. All the way across the Atlantic he had thought about it, though with lessening confidence as the time drew near. The very night of his arrival in London, he wrote, then tearing up the letter after sleeping over it, he had telegraphed next morning, asking if she would be in. He signed his surname, such a very common name, alas, but surely she would know, and her reply, please call 430, struck him as rather oddly worded, yet here he was. There was a rattle of the big doorknob, that aggressive, hostile knob, that thrust out at him insolently like a fist of bronze. He started, angry with himself for doing so, but the door did not open. He became suddenly conscious of the wilds he had lived in for so long. His clothes were hardly fashionable, his voice probably had a twang in it, and he used tricks of speech that must betray the rough life so recently left. What would she think of him now? He looked much older, too and how brusque it was to have telegraphed like that. He felt awkward, gauche, tongue-tied, hot and cold by turns. The sentences so carefully rehearsed fled beyond recovery. Good heavens, the door was open. It had been open for some minutes. 
It moved noiselessly on big hinges. He acted automatically. He heard himself asking if her ladyship was at home, though his voice was nearly inaudible. The next moment he was standing in the great dim hall, so poignantly familiar, and the remembered perfume almost made him sway. He did not hear the door close, but he knew. He was caught. The butler betrayed an instant surprise, or was it overwrought imagination again when he gave his name? It seemed to him, though, only later did he grasp the significance of that curious intuition, that the man had expected another caller instead. The man took his card respectfully and disappeared. These flunkies were so marvelously trained. He was too long accustomed to straight question and straight answer. But here, in the old country, privacy was jealousy guarded with such careful ritual. And almost immediately the butler returned, still expressionless, and showed him into the large drawing-room on the ground floor that he knew so well. Tea was on the table, tea for one. He felt puzzled. "'If you will have tea first, sir, her ladyship will see you afterwards,' was what he heard. And though his breath came thickly, he asked the question that forced itself out. Before he knew what he was saying, he asked, "'Is she ill?' "'Oh, no, her ladyship is quite well, thank you, sir. "'If you will have tea first, sir, her ladyship will see you afterwards.' The horrid formula was repeated word for word. He sank into an armchair and mechanically poured out his own tea. What he felt he did not exactly know. It seemed so unusual, so utterly unexpected, so unnecessary, too. Was it a special attention, or was it merely casual? That it could mean anything else did not occur to him. How was she busy, occupied, not here to give him tea? He could not understand it. It seemed such a farce having tea alone like this. It was like waiting for an audience. It was like a doctor's or dentist's room. He felt bewildered, ill at ease, cheap. But after ten years in primitive lands, perhaps London usages had changed in some extraordinary manner. He recalled his first amazement at the motor omnibuses, taxicabs, and electric tubes. All were new. London was otherwise than when he left it. Piccadilly and the Marble Arch themselves had altered and, with his reflection, a shade more confidence stole in. She knew that he was there, and presently she would come in and speak with him, explaining everything by the mere fact of her delicious presence. He was ready for the ordeal. He would see her, and drop out again. It was worth all manner of pain, even mortification. He was in her house, drinking her tea, sitting in a chair she used herself, perhaps, only he would never dare to say a word or make a sign that might betray his changeless secret. He still felt the boyish worshipper, worshipping in dumbness, from a distance, one of a group of many others like himself. Their dreams had faded. His had continued. That was the difference. Memories tore and raced and poured upon him. How sweet and gentle she had always been to him. He used to wonder sometimes. Once, he remembered, he had rehearsed a declaration, but while rehearsing, the big man had come in and captured her. 
though he had only read the definite news long after by chance in an Arizona paper. He gulped his tea down. His heart alternately leaped and stood still. A sort of numbness held him most of that dreadful interval, and no clear thought came at all. Every ten seconds his head turned towards the door that rattled, seemed to move, yet never opened. But at any moment now it must open, and he would be in her very presence, breathing the same air with her. He would see her, charge himself with her beauty, once more to the brim, and then go out again into the wilderness, the wilderness of life, without her, and not for a mere ten years, but for always. She was so utterly beyond his reach. He felt like a backwoodsman. He was a backwoodsman. For one thing, only was he duly prepared, though he thought about it little enough, she would, of course, have changed. The photograph he owned, cut from an illustrated paper, was not true now. It might even be a little shock, perhaps. He must remember that. Ten years cannot pass over a woman without. Before he knew it, the door was open, and she was advancing quietly towards him across the thick carpet that deadened the sound. With both hands outstretched, she came, and with the sweetest welcoming smile upon her parted lips, he had seen in any human face. Her eyes were soft with joy. His whole heart leaped within him, for the instant he saw her it all flashed clear as sunlight that she knew and understood. She had always known, had always understood. Speech came easily to him in a flood, had he needed it, but he did not need it. It was all so adorably easy, simple, natural, and true. He just took her hands, those welcoming, outstretched hands, in both of his own, and led her to the nearest sofa. He was not even surprised at himself. Inevitably, out of the depths of truth, this meeting came about, and he uttered a little foolish commonplace because he feared the huge revulsion that his sudden glory brought, and loved to taste it slowly. So you live here still? Here and here, she answered softly, touching his heart and then her own. I am attached to this house, too, because you used to come and see me here, and because it was here I waited for so long for you, and still wait. I shall never leave it, unless you change. You see, we live together here. He said nothing. He leaned forward to take and hold her. The abrupt knowledge of it all somehow did not seem abrupt. It was as though he had known it always, and the complete disclosure did not seem disclosure either. Rather as though she told him something he had inexplicably left unrealized, yet not forgotten. He felt absolutely master of himself, yet, in a curious sense, outside of himself at the same time. His arms were already open, when she gently held her hands up to prevent. He heard a faint sound outside the door. "'But you are free!' he cried, his great passion breaking out and flooding him, yet most oddly well-controlled. And I—' She interrupted him in the softest, quietest whisper he had ever heard. "'You are not free, as I am free, not yet.' The sound outside came suddenly closer. It was a step. There was a faint click on the handle of the door. In a flash, then, came the dreadful shock that overwhelmed him, 
the abrupt realization of the truth that was somehow horrible, that time, all these years, had left no mark upon her, and that she had not changed. Her face was as young as when he saw her last. With it there came cold and darkness into the great room. He shivered with cold, but an alien, unaccountable cold. Some great shadow dropped upon the entire earth, and though but a second could have passed before the handle actually turned, and the other person entered, it seemed to him like several minutes. He heard her saying this amazing thing that was question, answer, and forgiveness all in one. This, at least, he divined before the ghastly interruption came. But, George, if you had only spoken... With ice in his blood, he heard the butler saying that her ladyship would be pleased to see him if he had finished his tea and would be so good as to bring the papers and documents upstairs with him. He had just sufficient control of certain muscles to stand upright and murmur that he would come. He rose from a sofa that held no one but himself. All at once he staggered. He really did not know exactly what happened or how he managed to stammer out the medley of excuses and semi-explanations that battered their way through his brain and issued somehow indefinite words from his lips. Somehow or other he accomplished it. The sudden attack, the faintness, the collapse. He vaguely remembered afterwards, with amazement too, the savity of the butler as he suggested telephoning for a doctor, and then he just managed to forbid it, refusing the offered glass of brandy as well, remembered contriving to stumble into the taxicab and give his hotel address with a final explanation that he would call another day and bring the papers. It was quite clear that his telegram had been attributed to someone else, someone with papers, perhaps a solicitor or architect. His name was such an ordinary one. There were so many Smiths. It was clear that she whom he had come to see and had seen no longer lived here in the flesh. And just as he left the hall, he had the vision, mere fleeting glimpse it was, of a tall, slim, girlish figure on the stairs asking if anything was wrong, and realized vaguely through his atrocious pain that she was, of course, the wife of the son who had inherited. End of the Second Generation Recording by Linda Rimniak